Good morning, fellowship. We get to start at the same place we left off last week with the identity that is spoken over us as believers in Jesus Christ. Would you all stand with me and sing this? just a few minutes, so I gotta get to it. So here we go. Um, I, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and one of the dreams that we had when we launched this campus uh, nearly four and a half years ago was that we would see uh, a ministry full of 18 to 25 year olds, college students, uh, coming to see Jesus as their king and, and in small group and in discipleship. And uh, as the college pastor here and on behalf of our team, I just wanted to just update you that I don't know
don't know if you know this, at 9 and 10.30, we meet in here on Sunday morning, like it's 9.04 right now, you're here for that. But tonight at 7 o'clock, uh, we're going to fill this room with 18 to 25-year-olds, COVID uh, correct, of course. But uh, we fill this room on Sunday nights most weeks of the year with 18 to 25-year-olds, and I would invite you to come and check it out, but we're like, we're like at capacity. So it, when COVID's over, you come check it out. But uh, I just wanted you to know that dream... Is, is in the process of being realized, and, and it's incredible. And so we've got uh, over 40 small groups of college students, and one of our dreams is to have uh, a, a small group, people to get discipled in every fraternity, sorority, dorm, team, and that's what we pray towards, and uh, we're seeing the Lord be really faithful and good in doing that. And so uh, on behalf of our college team and our college students, we'd love, if you are a college student in the room, 18 to 25, come join us tonight. If you know college students, invite them to come and hang with us tonight at seven o'clock, and uh, we would love to worship with them. And so, good morning. Y'all all right? Thank you. Um, it's been, a, it's been a, a strange week, and I'm gonna, let, I'm gonna let Jesus sort of make the comment I think that, that I think it's appropriate for us to make, or for me to make. Jesus will hit the scene um, uh, uh, in, the, in a very strange time in the world. There are, there's a king an empire called Rome when Jesus comes onto the scene. And as he hits the, as his ministry hits the ground, he begins to announce that he is the king. There's a different kind of kingdom. And it's different than all the other kinds of kingdoms that the world tends to establish and build. And he, he says that, the, that his kingdom is marked by love and generosity and sacrifice and service and truth and justice and these kinds of things. And what ends up happening is the world of Jesus' day says, that's not the kind of king that we want. And Jesus will say, you know what the kings of the world, you know how they operate, how the rulers of the Gentiles in Mark chapter 10, he says, you know how they operate. They take power, they try to lord it over each other. They're always clamoring for more. He's commenting on the world of his day. And he says, but not so with you. You know want to know what defines his kingdom, he says? If you want to be great, you become a servant. You want to be first, you become last. And he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's a cross-shaped kingdom and a cross-shaped king. And aren't we glad, followers of Jesus, because in his kingdom, he has invited people in and he sets you free. And so I thought of nothing maybe more appropriate for us today, this week, to just simply pray and we're gonna pray our king's prayer. When asked, what does it look like to pray? He says, pray this. And I'm gonna ask you to do this with me. If you're able and willing, I'm gonna ask you just to get off of your chair and to let's posture ourselves on our knees before our king. And so I'm, I'm gonna do this with you. We got some space because the chairs. If you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, I know this is weird. You get to stay seated. Nobody's gonna judge you. We need this. We're gonna, we're gonna pray to our king. And I'm gonna ask you to join me and we're just gonna pray the Lord's Prayer together out loud, and I'm gonna close this in prayer. Whenever we're finished, feel free just to stay on your knees if you need some time to pray. We're gonna sing maybe an unfamiliar song. If you wanna stand and learn it with us and sing, if you want to continue to pray kneeling, feel free to do that. Let's pray together. Pray out loud with me our Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus, right now, we bend the knee to you as our king. Would you be glorified in our lives? Would you be glorified today? Not us. And we recognize that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's a cross-shaped kingdom that you have brought, but it's victorious over sin and death. Give us today just enough to do that. Would you rid from us the materialism that we see in our world and enable us just to have our daily bread today. Help us to extend radical forgiveness because that's what you've offered us. And Lord, today we pray that if the trial comes, we'd be ready. But Lord, today that you would enable us to glorify you with all that we have because you are our king. And we remember your promises made to us and we celebrate your goodness and your mercy to us. And we wanna live lives of love and sacrifice and generosity because that's what you did. And in so doing, you unlocked freedom. So Jesus, we love you and we honor you today. And we ask it in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen. Let's worship. Your word remains the same, you know. Your history can be. 
I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day. They celebrate your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength. How great, how great thou 
shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Oh, then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God. submit our lives to your word this morning, to the power of your spirit that works in and through us, and we are under the kingship, the lordship of Jesus, and it's in his name that we give you our worship and that we ask that you would move in and through us to act on your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you weren't here with us last week, we're doing a short three-week series to kick the year off together, and then we're going to move into Joshua, to Hebrews, and into 1 Timothy the rest of the years. We walk through the scriptures together, and so I'm super grateful that you've joined us this morning. Uh, for those that are online as well watching, thank you for being with us. My name's Clark. I serve as one of your pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and so it would be helpful if you'd weren't here with us last week to go back and watch last week's full service to get context for what we're doing in this series. And so um, we noticed this past year that we didn't have a common language as a church to have a biblical conversation around issues surrounding race and ethnicity. And so we wanted to lay the, the framework for that so that we could engage that conversation here as a church. And so we're primarily going to be looking at the theological and the ecclesiological implications of this topic. Okay, there's four other areas that I will unpack a little bit for us next week when we have the so what part of this series. But primarily we're looking at what does the Bible say and what are those implications for the church? How are we to respond based on what the scriptures say? And so Michael did a great job walking us through the idea of the image of God last week. 
And uh, today, Dr. James Hawkins is with us, and he's going to be walking us through some of the New Testament perspective on this area. And then next week, we'll unpack, okay, so what? What are we going to do with this now? And so we're thrilled um, to have Dr. Hawkins with us this morning, and I'm going to ask him to come up. His wife, Nicola, is with us as well, and his five girls, James. Yeah. And so uh, Dr. Hawkins... Um, he serves at the Joshua Center as, a, as one of their counselors on that team. He attends New Heights Church and teaches there as well. And uh, Dr. Hawkins has been a great friend to our church and has come alongside us as a staff in staff development and equipping the last few years. And so I say thank you for that. Um, James is an image bearer first. He's an adopted son of God. He's a father. He's a husband. And this morning, he's our teacher. And so, Dr. Hawkins... Thank you. Appreciate you being Thank here with you us so this much. morning. Yeah. You know, uh, I could go right into the talk, but I can't ignore, you know, part of just the moment that we come into this right now. You know, as a nation, we probably stared at the screen. You know, this 2020, we've probably all said to ourselves or to our kids, this is a moment that will be remembered in history. And it's, a th it's I think, a lot of things that have happened in this year that have caused us to challenge two things in us. Who is God and who am I? And what is my role to the world and to my brother and sister around me? You know, I want to offer you some hope today, though, church. While it may feel like the world is falling apart around you, you know, I served in the United States Air Force. My grandfather is a World War II vet. And at sometimes I'm wondering, what in the world is going on in America? And while I am glad to be an American, I am more proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because what I do know is that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, and he shall transform our lowly bodies to be like his body. What that means is that my first and foremost primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God above all else. And God in his sovereignty allowed me to be born as a black male in America. All other things come under my first and foremost, my primary identity in Christ. But because my citizenship is in heaven, I am sent to this earth as an ambassador to reflect his kingdom ethos more than any American ethos, more than a black ethos, or for many of you, more than any white or American or European ethos or a Latin ethos or an Asian ethos. Now, I will say, and Mike did a great job last week talking about the table of nations, that the image of God is in every ethnic, ethnic group. But I want us as a church to remember, don't get too comfortable in whatever your social location is on this earth. I want your primary and I was telling them this morning, one of my favorite symbols that God gave me this year is an anchor. And I love that y'all sing the song Promises because I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. And what does the rest of the song say, church? I know you got masks on, but you can talk to me. This is a cultural lesson here. You're supposed to call, call and response. He'll never let me down. That's why our, my faith is in an eternal kingdom, because one day, I hate to say this, America is not that eternal kingdom. But I do have a responsibility that while I am here, that I am an ambassador here in America, in this body that he has given me, to faithfully reflect his kingdom ethos so that I am an influencer for him wherever he chooses to have me. And that means in America, 
in Northwest Arkansas, in Fayetteville, in the church I reside in, in the community I reside in, in the places he allows me to work, and as Clark would say is, and in my family. Am I faithfully reflecting his kingdom citizenship? All right, that was a lot already. How y'all doing? <laughs> that wasn't scripted, by the way. So I want to be vulnerable though with you, because this is a topic that anytime we talk about it, it brings up emotion, and I'm glad it does. So I want to give you permission. You might get mad at me today, and that is okay. I want to actually invite your anger into the room, because I want to use that anger to fight for the kingdom of God. You may clap and rejoice. I invite that into the room. You may have questions. You may have doubts. You may have concerns. Those are all okay. And you know why they're okay? Because this is not a conversation we typically do as a church, which is why we find ourselves in the moment that we are in. Because what I feel is that we as a church, and I'm going to stand as a church leader, we have failed to properly disciple you on this matter. And so therefore, it makes sense that many people are doing the things that they do and why they struggle with the conversation that they, the way they struggle with it. And not particularly, we have not done it as the multi-ethnic church of Jesus Christ. These topics are normally handled in affinity groups. White people have their conversation, Hispanic people have their conversation, Asian people have their conversation, black people have their conversation, but we don't do it in a room together. And that's not God's design. Part of that is still because we have not fully recovered from the effects of sins of our forefathers before us. So I just want to make sense that that's hard. And what I'm here for today, though, is I'm not trying to convince you to James's way of thinking. I'm going to do the best to go and look into the biblical story and invite you to join God in what he's doing. So, you know, I could talk to you about what I'm against, but church, I think it takes a whole lot more character to stand and talk about what you are for. So let me tell you about what I am for. What I am for is even as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, I am for God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I am for the body of Christ coming together. I am for the gospel and that it is sufficient for all matters pertaining to human life when we properly apply it. Because one of our problems in the church is that we did not recognize that the gospel even pertains to this issue. And in the American church, we made the mistake of making about our own individual salvation, which does matter, but that God's restoration is not about you, yourself, and you. It is about you reconciled to him and him also restoring his image in relationship to us with him and us with each other as the body of Christ. I am for God's justice that deals with sin in order to restore us in right relationship with him and right relationship with each other. I am for the body of Christ being the leaders in culture rather than fearfully running away and avoiding things because they are afraid of the cultural narrative. See, I want to tell you something about Satan. He is not the creator of this world and the earth and everything that there is therein. What he does is what, because if you don't realize the biblical mandate is that the church, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. But what I typically find in history at cultural moments like this, the church ends up running away. And when the church runs away, Satan comes in and occupies and he makes it a stronghold of his. That if the church would just rise up to their proper authority in their place, they could push back the gates of hell. So what I would really say is, and I'm saying this as we, 
I'm in this with you. This moment that we're in and we're worried about how culture is handling this, I say that's a judgment on us because we failed to be who we were supposed to be here on this earth. All right? So I want to just take a moment, though. I've said a lot. I just want you where you sit right now to take a moment. And how is this even landing on your body as you hear this? You know, do you feel your blood kind of pumping and racing? Do you feel yourself kind of settling in? Maybe like, oh, I've been thinking these things, but I've never heard anyone say them. I just want to give permission that you're probably going to hear things and it's going to make you respond a certain way. And I really, true, honestly do care about that. And what I want you to be able to do is to stay in the room with me. Because I tell you, I, t- I remember doing this talk one place, and the lady's like, I was mad at you from the first sitting you said, and I shut the garage door on you. She's like, I heard nothing else you said from the first sentence that you were going to talk about race. I said, well, I'm sorry, you know, I, that that happened, but I wish you could have stayed in the room with me and heard the rest of what I said. But that's your choice, and I can't take away your choice to feel the way you feel. So I just want to give you that permission. I hope that you can stay in the room with me. So what I'm going to be looking at this topic is from the New Testament perspective. And particularly what I want to do is look at the lives of Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Because here's why I want to look at this. My hope and the central statement of what I'm trying to say today is this. That God's restoration through Jesus also pertains to healing the damage caused by the sin of racism and prejudice. That that God's restoration through Jesus Christ not only saves my soul from sin, but I believe it is powerful enough to also help do healing within the church. And I'm particularly, let me make sure I say this. My context for today is us, the body of Christ. I'm not, right now I'm not worried about 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I like how Dr. Tony Evans says, God doesn't skip over the church house to go to the White House. I'm worried right now about us, the family of God, okay? So this is a family discussion today. And I want to look at this and how Jesus did this, how Paul did this, how Peter did this. Because I want you to know, church, we are not doing something brand new that God has not already been involved in. This is your opportunity to be invited into this moment. And what will you, when you stand in eternity... How will you have to say, like, how you advance the kingdom of God? And I know there are a multiplicity of issues, but what did you do to help the body of Christ come together? All right? So I want to tell a personal story, and you're going to see a picture come up here. And this makes it a little bit more personal. That is my great-grandmother. I remember growing up and seeing my great-grandmother, and I wondered why, in my mind as a little boy, she looked like she was white. And I could never make sense of it. And I'm like, Mom, why does Granny Tate look the way she looks? And as you'll see this awkward picture of that boy with his eyes cut, that's me looking down at my cousins and my granny. Yes, yeah, awkward one, yeah. I had hair at one time. Um, but I remember when I got older, my mom had to say, well, part of why our family lineage is that, and I had, how do I say this? Because we are a, a multi-generational church this morning inappropriate relationships between slave masters and their slaves. We'll put it that way. And so even in my own family lineage, it is the blood of slaves and of slave owners. And I carry that in my own body. But what I'm really here for today is to say, you know what, church? We have some things that are good in our, in our history. We have some things that we've done well, but we also have some places where we've missed the mark. 
But the problem, the issue really is, is what do we do now? In this moment, right now, we have a choice. Will we be on the right side of doing what God wants for the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, moving forward? So I want to skip ahead to, there's some things I want you to contemplate as we think about today. One, because this, this is where I want to invite you into, it's not just about James. So I'm not going to tell you a bunch of so what stuff and what to go do, who to befriend, what politician to write to. What I really want to hope, what I hope will happen is that you'll have an encounter with God and the Holy Spirit and his word today, and that God will prod you and how you, what you should do in your own personal circle of influence and within this church and within this community. So what are your hopes? You can ask yourself, what are my hopes and longings regarding healing and unity in the body of Christ? How am I working with God and his church to bring this about? And this could look different for all of us. But an important one that I don't think we talk about, and this is why we, I think we typically get stuck, is what are my fears and concerns around the topic of race in the church, right? Some fears could be I'm afraid that this cultural narrative I hear outside will take over the church and we'll forget the gospel, which is why I want to talk to you today about how it is a part of the gospel so we can have a proper perspective there. I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. I remember one of my dear friends, a brother in Christ, who I know is a faithful brother in Christ, after um, George Floyd was killed, he called me. He said, James, I, I really trust you, and I got to ask you some questions, and he's white. And uh, he said, I know at this moment in history, I need to talk to my two boys about this, but I just don't know how to do it. I just don't know how to do that, and I don't know what I need to do. And as I was listening to my friend, I, I thought about it for a moment. And I really believe, like, you know, some, you know, I'm a counselor, and I try and lean into hard places with people. I say, hey, can I ask a question? Is part of the reason why this is hard to you, for you to talk to your boys about this is because you're afraid of them being ashamed for being white boys in this moment, that you're afraid that they will see themselves as the bad guys? He said, James, you hit it dead on the head. I'm afraid to bring it up, even though I believe as a follower of Christ I need to disciple my children in this, but I'm afraid of how this will harm how they see themselves. And all I said to him was, man, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for being a father who leans into hard places with your kids, and this is so hard. And what that also shows me is that while I'm having these conversations, my brother over there who's of a different ethnic group, we're having, the same, we're having some of the same difficulties in this conversation. We can lean into this thing together. That's a key word. Church, I hope you know this. This is not only a black issue, a Hispanic issue. It's not only for ethnic minorities. It's when we can all lean into the struggle together with Jesus as our anchor to the ground. Because if Jesus is my anchor, I can take risk. But if Jesus is not my anchor, then I can take no risk because things will pull me away and sweep me away. But if he's my anchor, I can take risk and lean into people's pain because Jesus is my anchor. Not any kind of social ideology, political affiliation, socioeconomic status. Jesus is my anchor. He allows me to take risk. And then I also want us to be able to talk about what I don't hear in culture talked about is 
What are my hopes and fears, and how are my hopes and fears impacting how I engage with others around racial issues in the church? We all are, like, it feels like when I look out there, and I know this, there's probably good conversations going on, but at least what I see celebrated in news articles, social media, and on the news, which I know it's not all true, but what I see celebrated is the fighting, the accusations and defensiveness. I don't hear anyone talking vulnerably about this is the beautiful vision that I'm hoping for. This is what I'm, pu I'm pushing for. This is what I'm hoping our relationship will look like when we reconcile together. So once again, you know I'm a counselor. So the next slide, I think I've, whenever I see a client, I want to do what I call an attachment history. And what an attachment history tells me is not that you are always bound by your past, but it tells me how your past could have affected your view of yourself, of God, and of others, and makes sense out of why you do what you do now. And particularly, I work with distressed relationships, marriages and families. And so when I think about America's attachment relationship across ethnic lines, and particularly right now, this one is going to be dealing more with America's relationship to black people or people of African descent. But what you'll see here on the chart is, in 1619, slavery begins, and it runs all the way till 1865. And that period after slavery and in between Jim Crow was not a peaceful, happy time, by the way. There were still more forms of when they used the police force and what they called convict leasing to enslave African Americans. And so you have the only time really in America that when truly when, Amer when blacks and whites lived in closest proximity was slavery. When the slaves lived on the grounds of their masters. That's closest proximity. A lot of trauma, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt not just for black people, because to do that, to harm another person, have you ever hurt someone, you know you hurt them, and you felt the pain in your own soul? You're like, ah, especially as a husband, you're like, I can't, I'm so sorry. Honey, I can't believe I did that to you. Or even for as a father to discipline your children, you know, I got five girls, and you see those big tears run down their face. It's like, I'm so sorry, I'm a part of that pain. Even to do that was a lot of pain even for white Americans as well that never got to be dealt with or addressed. But then we roll into Jim Crow and segregation. And I want you to understand that part of this, and we'll talk about in a moment, all of this was a war against the image of God, by the way. This isn't just against black people. This goes back to what Michael talked about last week. This was a demeaning of the image of God. So this was really an assault against heaven itself. And then we even go into with the modern civil rights. And so what we have is in Jim Crow, everybody after slavery, everything split. You black people go over there, us white people go over here. And here's the sad part about this whole thing. The church was used to write the theological treaties for all of it. At times, they turned to the church and said, well, what do we do with these slaves? What if these slaves become believers? At times, slave masters would not allow the gospel to be preached to their slaves because at least in England, what they said is if, some, if a slave becomes saved, they are now your brother or sister and you cannot enslave them. So in America, they said, well, we don't want to preach the gospel to them because we don't want to free them. Well, then some of our church leaders, and I won't call out their names right now, but they joined in and they said, they turned to them and they said, hey, and this is great awakening stuff. Hey, well, I'll say one name, but they say George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. What do we do? And they came up with the theology of, well, if they get saved, their soul belongs to God, but their body still belongs to you. That's a theological compromise from the church. And the church participated even in Jim Crow. And I say that with not to throw shame, but I'm saying, church, this is our responsibility 
to be faithful image bearers now, to right these wrongs. I know that's heavy. It's probably sitting heavy on a lot of you. But that's, if you hear me talk about this with passion, let me tell you what my passion is. It's not anger passion. My passion is I am an optimist. I fight for healing. If you're my client, even when you're in your most hard moment in your relationship, you could throw, throw wedding rings at each other. I'm going to fight for your marriage. I'm going to fight for your relationship. I'm going to fight for you. In church, this is James's passion, fighting for us to be who God intended us to be, to overcome this history. But why is this so hard? Because many times we get caught up in pain, fear, distrust, and shame. This brokenness brings us apart, and we don't know how to come together and talk. And I like this Martin Luther King quote. He says, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they do not know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Fellowship, I'm proud of you. Clark, I am proud of you. Because these are hard conversations, but these hard conversations are a necessary part of what it means to move forward. We've got to be able to learn how to communicate with each other on these issues, or we will never move forward. People say, well, how long we got to talk about it? How long depends on how we respond. Couples are like, how long will we be in this? It depends on how you respond to each other. I wish I could just tell you one sentence or give you one exercise and everything is fixed. It all depends on how you respond. If you can share vulnerably with your spouse what you're needing instead of attacking them or shutting down, and instead when your partner shares something, instead of you getting defensive or pushing it back on them or turning away from them, if you could turn towards their vulnerability and say, I'm so sorry. I never saw that. I didn't know that. Oh, I missed it. I'm here with you. I want to be with you. I want this to be a safe place for you. You know what that partner does? It's safe. It's okay. And then that couple begins to have a different conversation. Same thing in the race conversation. If a black person or another minority brings it up, oh, well, but you know this, or well, but about this fact, that just says, I don't want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Or even when a white person comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. This doesn't make sense. Oh, well, you should have figured it out a, a hundred years ago. Whoa. Well, you know, I'm not going to come back to that conversation because I'm just going to get blasted. The more we can lean into these places and how we respond to each other will change how long we're in it. And particularly when we allow God's kingdom ethos and his power and his spirit to work with us together, that's what we're really changing. But the problem is, is we get caught in these patterns of connection where we, we want to move towards connection, but we usually live in our own self-protection. And you'll see this on the next picture here. Because what I always tell people is you cannot have intimate connection when you, have, when you live in fearful self-protection. If I want to connect with you, I have to be vulnerable with you. But the more I'm more concerned about protecting myself and I just fight words with words and we, do, we just bomb each other with these words... We will never have intimate connection. It won't happen. Have you ever seen an argument on the news and people were like, you know what, your point was so good, I completely give up my position. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. But my real fear is this, that our own protective stances as a church is going to be what destroys us. You know, so many in the church now are worried about different theories of race or whatever, destroying the church. I want to let you in on a secret. Satan is using the church against the church to destroy the church. 
You want to say, well, where does that come from? Paul, one of the people I told you I was going to talk about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. He says, my brothers and sisters, we were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by who? You have masks on. Remember, this. you can talk to me. Each other. There we go. Thank you. Y'all are doing good this morning. I love it. So I want to hit some terms real quick because I got to keep moving. When I talk about these terms, though, and I like Michael touched on this a little bit. You know, I hear people say, well, this, this race theory is not biblical. There's only one human race. There's only one race. And they're right. There's only truly one human race. But the idea of race as we use it in America, we're talking about race based on skin color. That really didn't come into play until about the 16th and 18th century. And do you know why it came into play? You probably already know. It was created during this time in, in Europe, particularly this European enterprise, as a way of categorizing people based on skin color to say who's inferior and who's superior. That's where the idea of race as we use it modernly comes from. So what they are literally saying is, now catch this, because skin color, who, de who designed that? You're, there you go, God. So it is something that is divine from God. He chose who each, this identity that each one of us would have. And they want to say, they took it upon themselves to say, we're going to take this idea of skin color and determine who's inferior and who's superior. That is against the image of God. The idea of ethnicity, and Michael did a great job with this, it is immutable because God made the nations. He talked about the table of nations last week. God made the nations, tribes, and tongues. So there is even something divine and sacred even in the idea of ethnicity. God is in charge of that. Now, the idea of culture a little bit. There can be beautiful things that come out of culture, but not everything in culture is honoring to the kingdom of God. Culture is something we have to hold on to loosely and evaluate against the kingdom of God. It is acquired, and it's always changing. There are various customs and beliefs. We all have cultural influences. The key is we need to evaluate them. Even as Fellowship Church, when you want, and I, you know, many churches will say, well, we want to be a, multi, we want to be a multicultural church. I say to them, there's a difference between multi-ethnic and multicultural. Multi-ethnic means you want people of other ethnicities to worship with you. Multicultural means we want all cultures, we want the God-redemptive parts of each culture redempted in, uh, reflected in our body. Many churches in Northwest Arkansas, I hate to say this, is the rough thing. They're multi-ethnic, but they're not multicultural. They're going to do it based on upon one dominant culture and whatever that dominant culture is in the church. And LifeWay Research says that nine out of ten Christian churches are predominantly monolithic. Nine out of ten. That nine out of ten, 90 percent of the church does worships God and serves God and serves the community in racially homogenous groups. And the idea when we talk about justice, you hear about justice and reconciliation. For me, when I talk about justice and reconciliation, I'm not talking about necessarily social standards. I'm talking about biblical standards that God does indeed. He wants us to get back to what he intended. Michael preached about the garden, that everything was good with Adam and Eve when they were made in the image of God until sin came in. God sending Jesus to the cross to die for us and being raised was to restore the shalom that was in the Garden of Eden between all of humanity. Amen? So that's when I talk about justice and reconciliation. It's about getting back to that point and living as God would want us to live in his kingdom ethos. So Clark, I'm already pushing on my time. I know it already. 
So what I'm going to do is I want you to jump to the slide where it talks about Jesus. And I just want to look and go run through, look at Jesus, Peter, and Paul. And we even see in the life of Jesus, even in his lineage, that Jesus has a multicultural, a multi-ethnic background, even in his birth, right? Abraham was called out of a pagan nation, not Jewish, right? Tamar, a Canaanite, was, one of his, uh, was in his lineage. Ruth, a Moabite, is in Jesus' lineage. Rahab, a Canaanite, is in Jesus' lineage and in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Even in Jesus' birth, you see Magi coming from the, east, from the east to the birth of Jesus. You see the shepherds show up at the birth of Jesus. That's socioeconomic status. So we even see right there in Jesus' life, it moves on even further. Jesus' fellowship with the rich and the poor. He, he uh, shared the gospel and reached a whole city through a Samaritan woman. He crossed ethnic and gender lines because she said, wait, you Jews don't have anything to do with us Samaritans. Jesus was advancing the kingdom of God. He knew he had a responsibility, even in her relationship, to first go to the Jews, but he knew that God's gospel was a part of restoring all nations back to himself. He healed the Roman centurion's daughter. He, uh, Simon, when Jesus couldn't carry the cross, the Simon they turned to, many people believed that he was from North Africa. So even in the life of Jesus, it was multicultural and multi-ethnic. So church, why are we so separate? And Jesus even pushes on this idea in Matthew 22, in verse 36 and 40. You know, what's the greatest command? He doesn't just say love God and have your own individual relationship with God. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How we relate to one another also demonstrates our relationship and love for God. I already talked to you about John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. When that lady presented Jesus with an ethnic cultural issue, he responded and said, you, we Jews know what we worship. But he goes on further. He doesn't just stay there in the ethnic part. He says that one day God is looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. Those are the worshiper that God seeks. So even there, he has an ethnic and cultural confrontation even there. But then we go on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. They're wanting to still all be separate and, and separated from each other. But Jesus says, what? And here he is in the Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? If you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? Even the pagans do that. Jesus is saying, this is not how we should be. And I can't skip over this one. I do got to go back. Pull up the John 17 verse. And what really compels me in this conversation is that Jesus, when he was about to die, John 17, beginning at verse 20, his high priestly prayer, he says these words, my prayer is not for them alone but also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe. Our unity even affects how the world may believe that you have sent me. Then he goes on in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is asking for us to be united and to be one. It is not a suggestion. It is not a cultural mandate. It is directly from Jesus. I in them, you in me, so they may be brought to tolerance of each other. No, complete unity. And I love this part. Then the world will know. When we as a church come together and we cross these lines, and we fellowship together, and we love each other, then the world knows that our God truly reigns. Because the world already knows how to separate themselves out and only be with people who look like them, think like them, and do everything like them. 
but the church demonstrates the love of God that transcends all these barriers when we can cross over. But I want to go back to Peter now, because even Peter was struggled with this, and he, he had a hard time. You know, in Acts chapter 10, the whole letting down of the sheep, Peter, eat. I won't eat anything that's unclean, Lord. And then God has to show him, don't call anything I've made unclean. And then Peter is called to go to the house of Cornelius. And what happens? Peter recognizes, uh-oh, I used to think you Gentiles, you other ethnic group, I used to think you were defiled. But God is showing me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And then as they go on, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius' house, and they begin to speak in tongues, and Peter really realizes it. God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation, ethnos, right? The one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message that God sent to the people, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. But one of my favorite people on this is Paul. And Paul and Peter even have a clash over this. Peter is in Galatia, and he's supposed to be eating with the Gentiles. Remember, he got this revelation. He goes to Cornelius, but then he backslides, right? And then all of a sudden, what happens is, Paul has to confront him, and Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 2 and 11, verse 11, and I'm going to skip to 13. In verse 13, after Peter does this and Barnabas is led astray, Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I confronted him, I, I had to confront Peter to his face. See, Paul even considers this a gospel issue. Peter you can't do this ethnic separation and do this. Like when we're with the kingdom of God is trying to bring these groups together, you separating out to your own group and acting like this hypocrite like this is not in line with the gospel. So let me get ready as I get ready to come to a close. I want to go to Philippians chapter one, chapter two. And why do I love this part of Philippians? This is Paul again. And I think Paul has, he definitely in the New Testament is one of the people that was given this mandate to cross over. Paul was proud of his Jewish heritage. So don't hear me say this. Please hear me on this today. God chose divinely who he would allow you to be and where he would allow you to be. But remember where your primary citizenship is. It is in heaven. And so Paul was called to bring these two groups together. And I think Philippians chapter 2 is one of the best verses to describe this. And so Paul is in Philippians, and he says this in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Catch this. And catch these elements. This is the how stuff. This is the heart stuff, really. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, because Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because you understand, even in the book of Ephesians, it is a great deep theological book. Do you know that Paul is working on ethnic reconciliation even there? That he's talking about the Jews and Gentiles coming together under this identity of Christ? Do you recognize that even the book of Romans is Paul dealing with ethnic division? Because the Jews had been in Rome, but they were persecuted, kicked out. The Gentiles now come in to be believers, but the Jews are now trying to come back, and they're having a clash. Whose way is the right way? And Paul is standing in the tension of this ethnic divide, and he's telling them, this is what it means to come together. Not many times do we teach those kinds of things as a church. Is why we feel like there is no God and no map. But Paul gives us a map in his gospel and what he writes. It is here for us, people. 
And then in verse 3, he says, do nothing, catch this, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others about yourself. Don't only think about you and your perspective of the world. God has blessed other people to have a different perspective. The key is if we can come together as the Christ, as the body of Christ, and look to God's perspective, and we all are better off for it when we can do that. It goes on in verse 4. Not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Meaning, what, changes, what will help us change this church is we all have to take an active stance and not be passive. How do I help look out for you while you look out for me? Because when you look out for me, I don't have to worry about myself because my brother and sister have my back and I'll have yours too. We're in this together. And I love, he says, in your relationships with one another, in case you didn't get what I just said, let me give you an example. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and look at what he says about Jesus because it's convicting for all of us. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality God something to be used to his own advantage, meaning Jesus divested himself of every power and privilege he had. Why? Because he had a higher source of what he wanted to go to. He had an anchor that allowed him to do difficult things. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, catch this, because Jesus chose to give it all up, God took care of him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, when we can do this, God will do the same thing. So God, divest me of any of my own self-interest for the glory of God. May people see Jesus in me more than the skin on me or my bank account or where I live or my political beliefs. May I divest myself, use everything in me, God, to leverage it for the kingdom of heaven, to tear down every satanic stronghold that has separated the church historically. Church, if we can rise up and do that, I believe, I believe this could be one of our greatest evangelist witnesses in this time. If we could cross this boundary, and you know what I believe? It can happen right here in Northwest Arkansas. Fellowship. Cross Church, Christ Community, St. James, Restoration, trans whatever, if we could come together, New Heights, if we could do this and divest ourselves of our own interests and work across these lines, we manifest the kingdom of heaven. So I just want them to put these, these that what I said to contemplate, the worship team is gonna play, and I want you to think about these contemplation questions because Clark, the fellowship leadership, they need you to join in with them. Because many pastors want to do this, but they're scared about their members where their members go with them. Fellowship, I hope you'll join them in God's kingdom work. So let's just take a few minutes, sit with these contemplative questions. Father, how am I to respond?
is a king Seated among us Let every heart receive him now And where there is praise He will inhabit And there will be grace and mercy all around Every burden will be lifted in his presence Every trophy will be laid down at his feet There is a name that reigns above all others Jesus Christ the King above all. Unto the Lamb, honor and glory, worthy is He.
Oh, Jesus Christ, would you be glorified in and through us. God, would you be glorified. May we submit to your kingdom and your will because it's good and it's right and it's just. God, give us hearts to be peacemakers. Just like you, Jesus. God, thank you for James. Thank you for the word this morning that you spoke through him and that you're speaking through him to a lot of churches here in, in Northwest Arkansas. We're really grateful for his voice this morning. We're grateful for your voice in and through him and in through your word. Jesus, we love you. We want to look more like you. Let's end our time together this morning, church, by reading this prayer together, and then we'll, then we'll be dismissed. Read it with me. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are all your children. We each uniquely bear your image. Give us eyes to see one another the way you see us all. Teach us how to love those who may look different than us, those whom we do not yet understand, those with whom we disagree, and even those who reject us. May the world come to know your glorious, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love through us. All glory be to Christ, the King of love. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Thanks for being here, man. We so appreciate you. Church, go in the love of Christ and love those around you this week. We love you.